Thank you for checking out the Mercy Hill Church Sermon Podcast. If you would like to know more about Mercy Hill, you can visit us on the web at mercyhill.cc. Good morning, everybody. It's good to be here. If you want to turn with me over to 1 Corinthians, continuing on in our series. This morning we will be in week 7, chapter 6. So looking at verses 1 through 11 this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. As you turn there, we're just going to pray and uh, ask the Lord to help us as we uh, dig into his word and ask him to give us um, clear thinking and understanding and ask the Holy Spirit to help us. So Lord Jesus, God, as we open your word this morning, God, we understand that you are worthy of all of our affections and attention. God, that the things that you have spoken to us, God, we want to give you priority in these next few moments. God, that above everything else that is going on around us with what's going on after church, what's going on uh, in the football game, what's, what's, what's happening all around us, God, we pray that we would give you priority. Jesus, because you are worthy of all of our thoughts and, and, and intentions and affections. So Lord, I pray that we would give you those things. Holy Spirit, we pray this morning that you would help us to understand. God, we, we know that your word is, is, is life and is truth, and we pray that your Holy Spirit would, would breathe life into us and help us to understand. So God, thank you for the privilege it is to open your word together on this Sunday morning. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. Does anyone here sponsor a compassion child? Okay, we do. All right. It's a news article from last week. Compassion International sues teen mania over Acquire the Fire. Has anyone ever been to an Acquire the Fire? Right? It's like half the church has been to an Acquire the Fire. It's like this big youth rally, this big youth event that they do like on a weekend. It would be in Chicago, and there would be thousands of teenagers there. It's just, it's, it was, I've been to a number of them. It was a phenomenal time. But Compassion International is suing Teen Mania. Last year, Compassion International paid Teen Mania Ministries to promote its child sponsorships during Acquire the Fire events. So at the, end, at the back of the Acquire the Fire venue, there would be tables for Compassion children and other ministries. So Compassion is suing Teen Mania. But after the longstanding youth ministry canceled the events... The Colorado Springs-based nonprofit said it never received a refund. In November 2014, Compassion sued Teen Mania for more than $160,000, according to court documents. Teen Mania did not respond to the lawsuit, and Colorado court awarded Compassion a default judgment of the full amount, plus court costs and attorney's fees. The judgment from February remains unsatisfied, according to court records. Now... That's, a tr- that's, that's not made up. <laughs> that actually happened. That's happening. Um, when the world sees that, when, when, when the, the court of law, when the judge, when you know, the, everyone there present in the courtroom and as this makes its rounds in the media, when, when people witness that, what do people think of Christianity? Right? Because there's, there's, there's a testimony that we have as believers, we profess Jesus Christ and him crucified. We profess Jesus Christ as, 
has united us with himself and has made us family, made us brothers and sisters together, right? And then you read something like this where one Christian ministry is suing another Christian ministry over large sums of money. What does that look like to a world who does not know Christ? How does this affect the testimony of compassion and team mania? How does that affect the testimony of all of us? It's not just those two groups who are affected. It's really Christianity that's affected by this testimony. Now, we're going to turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 6 because in this we see the Apostle Paul begin to lay out some things for the Corinthian church. And I think it's very applicable for us today as it was for them 2,000 years ago. Starting in verse 1. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try, to try trivial cases? Do you, not, do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more, then, matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. So here we have in Corinth in the church at the time. Now, back in the day, they didn't have courtrooms per se that were, that were in separate buildings. The, the, the courtroom in Corinth was called the Bema, okay? And the Bema, or the, what's translated the judgment seat, was out in the open in the, in the marketplace, so this is for everybody to see, right? Can you imagine if court cases today were tried in the parking lot of Jewel? Right? Everyone's coming and going. People are there. Hey, we're going to have we're going to have a loss. We're going to have a, a custody battle at Walmart, right? And everyone's going to be a part of it. Everyone's going to see the dirty laundry. It's going to get ugly. But hey, that's just what we do things. Or someone's going to sue another person. We'll 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 do it at Whole Foods. Right? Whoever, whoever wins the lawsuit can actually afford to shop at Whole Foods. <laughs> so this was a bit of a form of entertainment for people. It's right in the middle of the marketplace, right in the middle of everyone, where everyone's coming and going. So first, the trial would go to arbitration. So first, the trial would go to arbitration. If that didn't work, then it would go before everyone else. And a trial would consist of, now, you have to remember, this is 2,000 years ago. It would go before a jury. And that jury was first or comprised of 201 people. So the jury would be 200. So it's in front of a whole lot of people. And if that, didn't, if that didn't work, it'd go before 401 people. Now, there has been, they had cases at times, depending on the amount of money that was at, at stake, where there was up to 6,000 jurors on the trial. So you can imagine, this was something for the whole town to see and talk about. Everybody would have known everything that was going on. 
The whole town would have known what was going on in the church in Corinth. This wasn't some closed matter where no one was able to find out what was going on. This was something that everybody in the whole town was talking about. This was a big deal to the testimony of Jesus Christ in the church. Because we've got brother going against brother in a lawsuit. So it not only affects the external testimony of the church, right? It affects what everyone else in the town thinks about that church where, where people are confessing a, a, a family relationship with one another, suing each other. What that, how that affects the external testimony, but how does that affect the internal testimony? I want to read a quick, this is a true story. I'm going to go through this quickly. There was a family with eight siblings and a widowed mother. The father had been a good provider, and when he died, their home was paid, paid off and a fund set up to cover the cost of the widow's funeral. The children were all married and had children of their own. Now, sibling number six, one of the sisters, married a foreign man who was always in, in and out of shady business dealings and as a result had trouble with the law. One day, that daughter called the widowed mother and said she needed $80,000 to keep her husband out of prison. She had two small children at home and didn't know what to do. So her and her husband picked up the elderly mother, drove her to a bank where she took out an $80,000 mortgage against her home and gave the money to the daughter to keep her husband out of jail. The daughter and her husband were not liable to pay the loan back since it was in the mother's name. The elderly mother had no income except her husband's pension to pay for the mortgage payments. Now, when siblings one and seven found out what sibling number six had done, right, they were angry, and they took the, they, they angry that their sister took advantage of their widowed mom. They immediately drafted a legal promissory note demanding that the sister and brother-in-law pay back the entire 80000 plus 8% interest to the mortgage company in the event of the mother's death. So they have to pay it back within 180 days of the, the mother passing. So they hunted, hunted down the siblings, made them sign the promissory note, which they did. The mother's health grew poor, and she moved in with sibling number eight, her youngest daughter. She was soon unable to drive her car, so the daughter that lived with her drove her mom wherever she needed to go. And as the time of her mother's death came, to, came close, siblings one and seven decided to prearrange the funeral of their mom while she was still able to have some input as directed by her father's will, using the money from her mom's funeral fund. When they went to get the money from the funeral fund, which was $15,000, they found out that it was taken by the youngest sibling who forged checks from that account to take money for herself. They also discovered that the, sister had of the, the, the youngest sister, had her mom signed over the title of her car for a dollar, completely taking advantage of her. Now, a short time later, the mom passed away, and it was time to make funeral arrangements because there was no money in her account. The funeral home went to the siblings and said, look, every single one of you needs to pony up $1,500 to cover expenses. Immediately, siblings number two and five said they had no money it wouldn't help. Leaving the expenses to the remaining six, sibling number six was attempting to make payments to the mortgage company, even though her foreign husband had left the country to avoid another run-in with the law, leaving her solely responsible to pay the $80,000 plus interest within 180 days. Five of the eight siblings pitched in to pay for the burial, and a day was set for the hearing of the mom's estate. I know this is crazy, right? At the estate settlement hearing, number six cried and said she couldn't pay back the money. Siblings two and five yelled at her, demanding that she pay back the money so they can get their $10,000 share. And the remaining siblings all took sides against each other. 
The house was sold, we paved back. This happened 10 years ago. There's no money left. One of the siblings then packed up and moved to Florida because she was so ashamed to face her, her other siblings. You can imagine what kind of effect this would have in a church. This is a true story. This, this happened, and I'm sure some of you know stories like this, that the parents pass away and it just gets ugly. Lawsuits and, and people dealing with one another. You can imagine, what, what kind of effect would this have internally on a church? What kind of effect would, would these kinds of lawsuits have amongst a family of believers? Right, so there's an external witness that's profoundly affected, and there's also an internal effect that it has on the body of believers. Now, that's why the Apostle Paul writes in verse 7, he says this, why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? I mean, there is a great testimony at stake here. The unity of the church, the, the profession of Jesus Christ to the, to the culture, why not rather be defrauded for that sake? Now, has anyone in this church sued another person in this church recently? Right? I don't, at least not to my knowledge, okay? So, Good news is, we don't have to bother with, this, with these verses at all. No, we'll get to that in a minute, okay? This has profound implications for us. We'll get to that in a minute. Let's move on to verses 9 through 11. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Verse 11, And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. It's a great Trinitarian verse right there, verse, verse 11. There's a list of nine vices that Paul lists in verses 9 through 10. I just want to read a quick quote because we can read that and think, oh man, you know, I've stolen things. What's, what's my hope? Paul is not talking about isolated acts of unrighteousness, but about a whole way of life pursued persistently by those who thus indicate that they would be aliens in the kingdom of truth and light. It's a whole way of life that is going against the very things that Jesus Christ has set us free from. So, he brings up a few, a few things in here that I'm going to talk about briefly. Okay, We're not going to go through all these vices. We're going to talk about a few of them. It's the sexually immoral, this correctly translated, is talking about a male prostitute. Idolatry. The greatest building in Corinth at the time was the temple of Aphrodite, the goddess of love and pleasure. Now, drunkards, he mentions. At the time, children would take bread and dip it in wine for a meal. Do you know what that was called? Breakfast. That was breakfast for kids. 
You can imagine if from a young age you're drinking wine, the effect that would have on you probably for the rest of your life, right? He also talks about homosexuality. Now, at this time in Roman culture, it was much, it was much more common than anyone would like to think that, and I, I'm aware that there's young ears in here, so I'm going to try to be careful here, that men would sexually abuse young boys on a regular basis. And it was accepted in society. And because of this, some scholars want to take that practice, or it's called pederasty, take that practice and say this is what Paul is talking about whenever he mentions homosexuality in the New Testament. But this, the translation for this homosexuality that Paul uses in these, in verse 9, he's not talking about that. Because this, this verse is a problem for some of those scholars that want to say, hey, this is the only thing that Paul is talking about. We've got a different kind of homosexuality in our day than they had then in their day. See, the problem is that this verse uses two different words for homosexuality in verse 9. And these two terms mean, refers to both the passive and active partners in a consensual homosexual act. So he's not referring to the sexual abuse of children. This is, he's talking about two consenting adults. So, Moving on to verse 11, that's why Paul says to the church. You can imagine when, when, when people are hearing these things, the, maybe the, a bit of scorn towards the people on the outside. You can imagine like, oh man, there's all this stuff going on outside, this, this theft, this sexual immorality, these swindlers, these drunkards, man, all those people outside the church. Man, that's what's wrong with society. It's all these, those people out there. Then he says in verse 11, And such were some of you. And such were some of you. And in this one verse, in God's word, should create an unbelievable humility and empathy towards people, wherever they're at. In Europe right now, they're facing a massive refugee crisis at the moment. 3.8 million Syrians have moved to neighboring countries. In America, we have somewhere in the ballpark of 10 million illegal immigrants living within the borders of this nation. And all you need to do is watch the news for just a few moments. And depending on what station you're watching, you can get fearful about the future of this country. What's going to happen? What about the jobs? What's going to do to our economy? I mean, all those kinds of things that... The, the, the media wants to throw at us to get people riled up and worried and fearful. And so the tendency for us, as Americans now, is, uh, at times, is to not share. Keep what we've earned. Lock them up. Send them out. Whether it's civil war or poverty that's going on in their country, that's, that's their problem, man. It's not our problem, right? They, they've got issues over there. That's, we, didn't, we didn't do that. They've got to get that figured out. Then Paul's words come back. But such were some of you. See, my family came over on a boat 120 years ago. We're a nation of immigrants. When we remember who we once were and where we came from, 
it really changes our perspective. It humbles us. 120 years ago, that was me. That was me. Then he continues on in verse 11. But you were washed, forgiven. You were sanctified. You were set apart for God. You were justified. We were declared righteous by God in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. See, one of the proofs of Christianity is its power to take those lost in shame and guilt and addiction and deception and theft and morality and turn them into children of God. This is the transformational power of Jesus that he is able to make all things new. No matter who we are or what we've done or where we've been, he's able to make all things new. That's the testimony of Jesus Christ. That's what he's done for us. This is why we sing songs and gather together because he's made all things new. Such were some of you. But it's not who we are anymore. We've been declared righteous. We've been cleansed. We've been set apart for God. It's got a purpose for us. It's got a future for us. This is what God has done. All right, let's talk about a little bit of application. Lawsuits in the church. When I, when I read this, I think about, this is really for us, this is about rights. My rights, your rights, our rights. We're born into a nation that has at the very core of its documents, the founding documents, a bill of rights. We have rights, we know our rights, we demand our rights, we are angry when our rights are violated. I mean, we're a nation of people with rights. That's what we know. And maybe there's a time to lay down our rights instead of demanding them. Big ways and little ways. Little ways. I had a friend back in high school, and we were, we were in a basketball tournament together, and something happened, my shoes, my shoes ripped or something like that, and, and so he lent me his basketball shoes to play with. We had the same size shoe, and so he lent me his basketball shoes, and somehow his shoes never got back to him. I didn't keep them. I think one of my other friends took them. But anyways, so whenever he saw me in high school, he'd be like, hey, where's my shoes, man? You know, just... I'm like, I'm like, I'm so sorry. I don't have your shoes, man. I thought, I thought they got back to you, but, you know, some, whatever. So, now, a few years ago, I'm at this huge conference. There's about 10,000 people at this conference, this big gospel coalition conference, this nationwide Christian conference, and they have these breakout groups, and so you go to different groups to hear about different things. And so I went to this breakout group, and I sit down, and lo and behold, I sit next to Tom Miller, right? And he looks up at me, and he's like, you got my shoes? <laughs> I mean, this has been 20 years, okay? It's been 20 years, and he's still wondering about his shoes, okay? And it was just, we both laughed and laughed and laughed, and we had a nice time together. But I thought it's funny, because that's the first thing that he thought when he saw me, right? He's been holding on to this for 20 years. But we do that with one another, don't we? Someone forgets to pay you back. Every time you see him, you're like, man, that guy owes me five bucks. Come on, man, just pay it back. You know, just, we hold on to those things because we've got, I, I've got rights. It's my right to be paid back. 
It's my right that you owe me something. You have something of mine. It's my right to, to reclaim that. Right? That's how things work in our society. That's how we kind of bring that into the church as well. We've got rights. That's a minor thing. It's not a big deal. It's shoes, right? Here's a bigger thing. There's a couple who, um, whose father passed away, and the father had left a sizable amount of money, six figures, in a pension, and that was to go to his children. And the, the stepmom fought to get that money for herself, and it was clear that it was that money was earmarked for the kids. Like I said, it was a lot of money. This isn't a few thousand dollars. This is a six-figure sum of money. And the, the, the kids could have brought that to court, could have hired a lawyer, could have gotten that money for themselves legally. It would have been an ugly court battle. It would have been them against their stepmom. But they said for the sake of their relationship, with their stepmom and the testimony of Jesus Christ, they'd release those funds, not taking them for themselves. They laid down their rights instead of demanding them for the sake of the testimony of Jesus Christ. That's a big deal. Look, when you're a young couple, you can do a lot of money with a hundred thousand. You can do a lot of stuff with a hundred thousand dollars. A lot of money but laid it down for the sake and testimony of Jesus Christ. See, this is what Jesus Christ did for us. 1 Peter 2, verse 21. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example, so that you might follow in his steps. This is the, this is the example of Jesus Christ. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued to entrust himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins on his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When if there was anyone who had the right to say, enough is enough. You will not treat me this way. It was Jesus Christ. He laid down his rights for us. He suffered wrong on our behalf. And now when we come to him in faith, believing that his death was enough for all of our sins, we're forgiven and redeemed and we're, we're given his righteousness. That is what Jesus Christ has done for his people. Now, in regards to verses 9 through 11, I got a phone call this week. I love getting phone calls, and I got a phone call this week, and this gentleman on the phone asked me this question. Is Mercy Hill a gay-friendly church? How would you answer that? Someone asked you that question. Is Mercy Hill a gay-friendly Friendly church. Now, are we a gay-friendly church? Now, you could say, well, what does he mean by friendly? What, you know, just, there's all kinds of nuances that you can go to. I would also ask, are we friendly to drunks and swindlers and adulterers and thieves? If we weren't that kind of church, 
then nobody would be here. Because such were some of you. Jesus welcomes all who would come to him. But he doesn't leave us as we are. Transforms us. Changes us. Doesn't leave us as we are. That's the good news of Jesus Christ. That we can come to him no matter where we are. He says, but such were some of you. That's not who you are anymore. You've been washed. You've been sanctified. You have been declared righteous because of what Jesus Christ has done. I'm going to close in prayer. We're going to celebrate communion together. Communion is such a fantastic way for us to be reminded that no matter what has taken place this week, we've been invited back to the table again. We've been invited by God back to celebrate a meal together with Jesus. So Lord, we, we come before you and we thank you for your transforming power of the gospel that such were some of us, but you have changed us. You have transformed us. You have declared us righteous. You have brought us into your family. You've given us your name. It's called the sons and daughters. And we are not the same. Jesus, thank you. Thank you, Lord. You have been so faithful to us. We love you. We worship you. And we give you the praise and honor that you alone deserve. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.